Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The number of COVID patients in hospital has topped 2,000. With warnings, we've yet to reach the peak. Paul Quinn of Virgin Media News is standing by with the latest. And controversy over vaccine rollout at two maternity hospitals. We'll have more on that. On our first panel tonight, we're joined in studio by Minister of State of the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, Oshin Smith, and live via Skype by Dr. Nina Burns. Plus, later in the programme, tennis stars in Australia, including Novak Djokovic, have come under fire today for seeking special treatment while isolating in quarantine hotels. Broadcaster Eamon Dunphy joins us on the need for similar strict quarantine measures to be taken here. Get in touch via Twitter on the hashtag TonightVMTV. We're joined first by Paul Quinn of Virgin Media News on another busy news day, but news tonight in relation to the schools and the planned return on Thursday for schools for children with additional needs. What is the development? Yeah, well, this is certainly a big blow, Matt, for those hoping to get those schools, special schools, special classes reopened this Thursday. Tonight, the INTO, the union, urging the department to reconsider its plans to reopen them on Thursday. Now, it follows a special webinar that was held earlier today. Uh, thousands, including around 5,000 special needs assistants, uh, other stakeholders involved, meeting with public health officials, I suppose, to try and allay fears uh, over the return to school. But the uh, union tonight saying it still has grave concerns the teachers aren't happy, they're anxious, they want to go back to school, but they're worried. Now, the uh, Union Central Executive Committee met tonight uh, saying that it wants the department to reconsider these plans, also saying that the failure of Minister Foley and Minister Madigan to engage in proper consultation in the last two weeks has been damaging and has hampered the planning for the safe reopening of schools. Now, the union will meet again tomorrow. Forsa, also the union representing special needs assistance, is due to give its uh, verdict on whether or not it believes it's safe for SNAs to go back into the classroom, but certainly it's not a good look just a couple of days out from Thursday. Speaking to one of those groups representing children with special needs tonight, says he's absolutely gutted. Now, separately, was there some good news today about falling numbers of additional confirmed COVID-19 cases? Yeah, well, today we saw uh, eight further deaths and uh, just over 2,120 new cases. Now, when you look at this day last week, we were just under 5,000 cases. So certainly uh, the falling death rate and the falling case numbers are encouraging. However, uh, the hospital system is still under immense pressure. We have some uh, 2,000 people with confirmed COVID-19 in hospital, around 200 in ICU and another 200 out on the wards who were receiving some high-level uh, respiratory care. 
So certainly the system uh, is, is feeling the effects of recent weeks and the effects of all those cases. And we know already that some patients are being moved out of acute hospitals and ICUs, moved out of the public hospitals into private hospitals as they try and uh, free up some capacity. Now, Dr. Tony Holland tonight saying while there is some encouraging signs that we're still at the 14-day incident rate is still the worst in Europe, that it's not time now to take the foot off the gas and encouraging people to work from home to keep following the public health measures because uh, the cases aren't falling as quickly as they'd like them to matter. Now, how are they coping with the controversy about the distribution of the vaccine, certainly at the Coombe Maternity Hospital and possibly also at the Redonda? Yeah, well, there's a lot of uh, focus and attention, I suppose, on the vaccine rollout, given the demand for it, given where we are and the numbers that we're actually able to get our hands on. Uh, earlier this morning, we heard a story that it dates back to the uh, Friday, the 8th of January, but it's, it just came to light uh, in recent days that 16 relatives of staff at the Coombe Hospital uh, received extra doses uh, of the vaccine. And then this evening, we also heard that at the Rotunda, they had some leftover vaccines uh, following their rollout on the 6th of January. Uh, they put out a call to try and get people to, to get those extra doses. They engaged with the National Immunisation Advisory Committee um, and they got around 37 others, they say GPs and people in vulnerable groups. But I suppose it has uh, put the spotlight on it, exactly who is getting these vaccines. When you hear stories about relatives of employees getting them, it's certainly not a good look. But uh, this evening, the HSE saying that guidelines are in place. They were put in place on the 12th of January. Has to be said, after these incidents, both at the Coombe and the Rotunda and that uh, special centres or centres rolling out the vaccine should have um, uh, standby a list that they can access uh, pretty easily, that they get frontline healthcare workers at very short notice if they do have some extra vaccine doses as well. And very briefly, Paul, because it's something we'll also be touching on later, and that's personal behaviour. Tell us about the number of fines for people who have breached the five kilometre exercise rule. Yeah, well, I think most of us will agree that there's definitely a, a higher level of checkpoints and, and visibility uh, by Gardaí out there. Uh, in the last uh, seven days alone, 400 um, fines have been issued, 300 of them over the weekend alone. In Wicklow, for example, around 170 people fined €100 Euro each for going to the mountains, and we've seen uh, incidents like that happen in other beauty spots around the country. Interesting tonight, Gardaí also saying that they stopped a man near Punchestown Racecourse in Nace, uh, who was failing to comply uh, to keep within the five kilometre. They say he uh, failed to comply. They've charged him. He's due in court uh, tomorrow in connection with that incident. But Gardaí saying overall, despite these incidents, that the majority of people are following the guidelines. Thank you very much for that, Paul. Well, we're joined now by the Minister of State at the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, Oisín Smith, and also via Skype by Dr Nina Burns, General Practitioner. Nina, this issue that has arisen today around fairness with relatives of staff at the Coombe and now allegedly two people at the Rotunda getting vaccines that would otherwise have gone to waste. What do you make of that? Look, I don't know the full circumstances upon which those extra vaccines were given in the Coombe, but I think it's really important. The most important thing to say is that no vaccine doses were wasted. And Certainly, I think it would be a whole other headline if we found out that people were throwing away vaccines. So um, I do know that the Coombe definitely did reach out to local GP practices. I have friends who were brought up in the afternoon into the evening and vaccinated. So I, I don't think they just went straight to family members. They reached out to other people. But I, I think it's really important to know that once a vaccine is drawn up, it has to be given within two hours. So it's all very good and well to say they'll have a reserve available. But uh, People queuing up outside. If if a vaccine is drawn up at half seven, 
and needs to be used by half nine and it's quarter past nine and there's four doses left, if people can't get there in 15 minutes, those vaccines will be wasted. So I would rather see a vaccine go in an arm than see one go in the thin. Minister, will this mistake not be made again? Will you have measures in place to ensure that if somebody else has to get the vaccine, that it will be somebody who's near the top of the priority list rather than somebody who might have been months away from it? I think this is something, um, this is a situation that's going to happen every time you have a, a, you know, every time you have a medical clinic, you have people who don't show up, you're going to arrive at a point where you have doses that need to be distributed, you have surplus doses, and, uh, and you, you know, if you, if you haven't prepared, you have nobody left to distribute them to. So I understand that a protocol on this has been drawn up by the, um, by the chief clinical officer of the HSE, Colm Henry, who has written to the acute hospitals and asked them that when they are distributing these vaccines, that they draw up a reserve list of, um, of frontline front healthcare workers who would be suitable for having vaccines if, uh, if, if there are some available at the, end of the, at the end of the batch. And as the doctor was telling you, um, they only last for a few hours once they're taken out of the, of the, of the deep freezer. It's 120 hours on a, on, um, uh, on a Pfizer vaccine. But how could that have happened? Surely you had months to plan it and it could have been done on the basis of the way that airlines plan the booking of seats, for example, on aircraft it to is, make sure they overbook in the event of people not turning so up. It is, it is absolutely the, the nature of, of clinical practice that, uh, that people do not show up and you need, and you need to have overbooking. So essentially, um, the, and, and of course, all doctors will have a list of patients, of people who they know who would be suitable people to have the extra Th those doses. Those 16 in the coom, will they get their second dose along with everybody else on the same day? Oh, yes. Everybody who gets a first dose is going to get a second dose. So that, and in fact, Even if they shouldn't have been on the list to get it the first time around, now that they've had the dose, <laughs> they will get the second. They're right? a patient now, and if they've had one dose, they're going to get their second dose. And in fact, the, fir the, the first people who, who receive their vaccines are going to be receiving them tomorrow morning. So that, that, is, that's a, that is an actual turning point. And so at this point... We're moving from a situation where everybody who's getting vaccinated is having their first jab to tomorrow where, where the vaccines are being distributed to, to people for a second jab. So that, that, that's, that is a But you can guarantee from now, can you, that this will be done on a fair basis. It's not going to be on the basis of who you know uh, in the hospital system or in the vaccination system or even politicians getting involved, will it? But the most important, of course not, and the most important thing is that the people who are vaccinated are the people who, are, who, who need it most, who are in danger of death. Uh, or people who are dealing directly with people who who have who are infected with coronavirus. So the so the the protocol that's been given to the doctors is to make sure that they have a reserve list if they arrive at a, at a situation which they most likely will, where they have a surplus of doses and they have a choice between distributing them to, to people or putting them in the bin. Okay, Nina, how is the distribution of the vaccine to health staff such as yourself, a GP? How is that going? Have you had your job at this stage? Yeah, so I, I very luckily got my first dose in a nursing home and, and I actually got one of those extra doses. I was the last person to be vaccinated that day in the nursing home and I am really thankful that they had surplus doses to give. Um, so there was a bit of a scramble last week. There was panic among GPs because there didn't seem to be a plan to vaccinate us. But I, I think fair play to the HSE and the ICGP. They worked very hard towards the end of the week. They got in place these mass vaccination clinics and there were three of them on Saturday and there are more planned for next week. And certainly we're much more optimistic as GPs that the vaccine is getting rolled out. Um, it is really important that we all get vaccinated. Um, obviously, you know, we're hoping GPs will start giving vaccines soon. So we want not just the GPs, but our nurses and our admin staff who will also be exposed to patients coming in 
to be vaccinated so we can be safe to then give the vaccine to other people. Because, Minister, there are lots of other people who say that perhaps they should be moved up the list in the health service. There's an awful lot of ambulance workers who at the moment say that they haven't been vaccinated, even in parts of the country like Mayo, where you have very, very high incidence. Also, pharmacists say they are dealing day by day with people who are ill coming into them and they need to be vaccinated. How quickly will that be done? So many, uh, many ambulance drivers have been, have been vaccinated, paramedics have been vaccinated, not all of them, because right now the focus is on the nursing homes. So the, the plan at the moment is to complete all of the long-term residential care homes by, by Sunday. Um, so at the end of this week, which will be, which will be a momentous thing to have uh, protected all of the people who are, who are in nursing homes around the country. The second phase is to do um, healthcare workers. I understand that uh, 69,000 uh, frontline healthcare workers had already been vaccinated by last Wednesday. So everybody, um, people, are, people are very eager to be vaccinated. I'm, I'm delighted that so many people are, are, are competing. Are you finding any resistance in the way that a lot of nurses, for example, didn't like taking the flu vaccine? Mm. Has there been any such reluctance in relation to the COVID vaccine? Um, no. And in fact, if you go back five years, I remember there was only a minority of, people, of, of healthcare workers in the HSC had, had taken the flu vaccine. This time around, I think there was a poll on the weekend where 86% of people, of the general public, are keen to take the vaccine. And all this enthusiasm and this discussion about who should be in front of who is an indication uh, that people really want to take it. And that is really important so that we can reach a proportion of the population that we have immunity across the whole population. Nina, a final question for you. As a GP at present, how busy are you? Yeah, so we were, we were very busy with what we call COVID calls again today, which was, I'm hoping, was just a Monday bump because um, we ended up referring a lot of people for testing today. Um, and we're also trying to keep doing normal things. So I suppose we have to be extra careful um, knowing what the numbers are, what they are. We're, we really have to sort of double down on making sure the people who come in, we've triaged appropriately. We're being extra careful about... Um, you know, PPE and then cleaning after every person, really doubling down on everything we're doing. And all of, all of that takes more time. So, you know, we're seeing patients um, and we're busy with all the other stuff. So, yeah, we're, we're really busy, actually. But um, we're, we're glad to be open. And I think it's really important to say to patients, please don't stay home if you're sick. We are open and we're there to see you and we want to look after you. Do you not want patients all ringing in first before appearing at the surgery? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Don't, don't appear. <laughs> don't appear. Ring us and uh, we'll talk you through the best way to help you. So sometimes that is a phone call um, and other times you need to be seen. And, you know, we're, we're good at now deciding who to bring in and who not. Um, but what I'm trying to say is do ring, don't fit at home worrying. And I have to agree uh, with Oshin there. I think all the talk about vaccines and everyone, you know, lobbying for their place in the line, it's good in one way. It means everyone wants it. But I, I think it does also reflect the anxiety that is out there among people about the vaccine vaccine, or sorry, about the, the levels of COVID in the community. And I suppose the most important message is remember, the best thing we can do for COVID right now is stay home, only go out if you need to. And hopefully we can get the vaccine to those who need it as soon as possible. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Nina Burns. This idea of lobbying, though, I want to go back to you because front page of the Irish Daily Mail today reported that Jackie Cal, Fianna Fáil TD, quoted as saying, claiming responsibility for getting the staff at Nina General Hospital vaccinated. You, the government minister, Dara O'Brien, the minister for housing, claiming responsibility for making sure that the paramedics in the Dublin Fire Service got it. So how much of this is going on? of politicians trying to say, well, we've gotten this sorted out for people. Um, our, our basic political system is that if you go to a politician and ask them to represent you, then they will contact the minister on your behalf and make a representation. That's, a, that's how the system works. Um, however, 
I think that people might be overstating the case. I don't think any, I don't think any individual politician is able to get somebody moved up the list. I certainly wouldn't, uh, wouldn't promise to do that. I, I mean, I think that it's certainly reasonable to go back to Neffet or to, or to the uh, or to the NIA and say, um, you know, what, what 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 exactly is a key worker or where exactly on these fourteen categories, you know, are you know, look for clarification on them or something. And I've had questions about that, and I think that's absolutely fair. But I don't think any politician could or should move somebody up a list. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that's happening. Well, we're joined now via Skype by Anthony Staines, Professor of Health Systems with Dublin City University. Uh, the figures that Paul Quinn told us about earlier, just over 2,000 confirmed cases today. Are you taking encouragement from the fall in the number of additional confirmed cases? Or is it possible that we're not finding out everything because an awful lot of confirmed contacts are now not actually been checked? I, I think that when we start checking the contacts, and HSE have indicated that when the cases get down to 2000, they will start that again. We expect the number of cases to go up a bit, but overall, the number, the real number of cases is almost certainly going down, going down substantially, which is great news. It's what everybody wants. How far down do you believe it has to be driven, though, before we can start even discussing again, opening up things? Well, my, my group in, the, in ISAG are, argue that we should use the opportunity to make this the last lockdown we have and bring on public health measures like really thorough tra contact tracing, is supported isolation, quarantine at airports and so on, to bring the number down as close to zero as we can and try and keep it there. And that allows us to get a large part of our economy, except clearly foreign tourism, open. But if we weren't Perhaps able to do it possibly, if we weren't able to do it previously when the numbers were much, much lower, what makes you confident we can drive the numbers down to near zero from the current level? The number of cases is falling sharp. We, we know that the number is a little bit misleading because we're not identifying contacts. But the number of symptomatic cases is falling. The number of positive tests is falling. And both of these are fair indications that the amount of COVID in circulation is falling. And that's good news. Because it, it does say that the Irish population are behind this. It, it confirms what the opinion polls have repeatedly stated. There was one done this week, asked the Irish public what they thought about hotel quarantine specifically, and they're in favour of it. So the Irish population understand that controlling this is how we get our lives back as fast as possible. What about the situation? But it's for the government to make that yeah, what about the situation, Anthony, in the hospitals at present? Because there are suggestions that the number of 2,000-plus cases of COVID in the hospitals might continue to rise, notwithstanding the fall in the number of new confirmed cases. How well placed is it to cope? It almost certainly will continue to rise for a while because the number of hospital cases rises sometime after the number of cases in the community. All I can say to that is my colleagues are very well prepared for this. Everything that can be done to manage this safely and effectively is being done. Uh, one message they would like to get across is that if you need to be in hospital, you should not be afraid to go. There are pathways to separate out non-COVID patients from COVID patients. And that starts with the ambulance service and the paramedics. So if you have worrying symptoms, call someone, call your GP, call an ambulance. Don't be afraid to do that.
Anthony Staines, thank you very much. Oshin, on that particular point, though, uh, we do have a situation whereby 6,500 nearly healthcare workers are out of work at the moment because they either have COVID or they're close contacts or they have childcare issues. How much of a shame is it that, despite the fact that last summer, childcare was highlighted as the major issue you had to be ready for if there was a third wave, it has become an issue again, which has stopped staff from turning in? So I think it, 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 it's, certainly, uh, it's certainly a problem. And I guess the challenge is that, um, that childcare workers uh, are particularly at risk. It's difficult for them to, um, to, to isolate or to, to, to distance themselves from, from, uh, from children. Hard for children to, to follow rules like that. Many of them uh, naturally are, are, are worried to go back, and particularly if they're living with, with family who, who, who are vulnerable people themselves. So... Okay, we leave it there for now. Our thanks, as I said, to Anthony and Nina, but Minister of State Oshin Smith will be staying with us. Up next, Australian news was dominated by this topic today. Good evening. Victoria is standing firm on hotel quarantine for tennis stars after world number one Novak Djokovic issued a list of demands calling for less time in isolation and private housing. They and other players can expect little sympathy from Victorians. This is the worst part of quarantine. I don't wash my own hair. Is it time we introduce mandatory hotel quarantine here. Broadcaster Eamon Dunphy joins us on this issue and more after the break. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Well, we're joined now by broadcaster of The Stand podcast, 
Eamon Dunphy. Eamon, we were just looking at the reports of the public outrage in Australia today over these tennis stars who travelled over for the Australian Open, complaining about their limited hotel quarantine condition, having to wash their own hair, etc. But do you think, have Australia maybe got it right and that we need this type of strict enforced quarantine for anyone travelling into Ireland? Yes, Australia have got it right. They have been very rigorous. Uh, they have a population of 25 million and they've had 909 deaths. New Zealand also, population the same as ours, 5 million. They've had 25 deaths. Now, they have been really strict and no messing. They know what they're about. And that's the mistake that we're making. But are we stuck because of the border? That there's something of an irony here in that we spent the whole time arguing about Brexit that the border had to remain open at all costs. And now it seems that by having that, we're allowing the illness to be coming in perhaps via the six counties. The border is the one thing we maybe can't do anything about, and it's very difficult. But there are lots of other things we could do. For example, quarantine for people coming into the country. It should be straight into a hotel. You should be made to produce a certificate saying you're COVID free, uh, whether you're an Irish person who's gone abroad coming back or whether you're a visitor. That's got to stop. And also, we've got to make sure that we have an exit strategy and that it depends on the numbers being right. We have to suppress this virus. Otherwise, nobody's going anywhere and the tragedy will get even worse. Can you see this lockdown that we're in at the moment going on for months? Does it perhaps even need to get a bit tougher? Well, it has to get tougher. It has to wait until the numbers are right. And we are in the winter now, which is the toughest time to control this virus. We had in July, on the 2nd of July, three new infections and three deaths. On the 4th of July, we eased our restrictions and we were off again. And that's the mistake we have to confront. In late November, I did a podcast with Tomas Ryan, who's a guest on your show very often. He's from the Independent Scientific Advisory Group. And, at the, and the headline on the podcast was, we are about to make a terrible mistake. That was on the basis of what he, of his analysis. And at the time, we'd said we weren't going to open up. In December, we said we wouldn't open up until we were down to 100 infections a day. We actually opened up when the number was 400. That was a terrible mistake. But can you understand why the government did that, Eamon, that there was an awful lot of pressure on from commercial interests, but probably a lot of politicians were hearing it from constituents that people were tired of the restrictions, they wanted to have a bit of a life again, they wanted people coming home from abroad. I mean, Eamon, I know at a different stage of your life when you were a lot younger, I was out on many nights with you. I can imagine that the old Eamon Dunphy would have been wanting to use December to have a bit of partying and a bit of fun. Yeah, and January and February. <laughs> but the, the, the point really is this, it's very hard for young people. It's very hard for many people. But it, there is no easy way out of this. We just have to prepare ourselves psychologically and understand that the numbers control everything. And if we don't get down, 
to single figure numbers. And if we don't toughen up our restrictions, we could be looking at four, five and six lockdowns. In fact, we will be. How are you yourself? Because I know you have been very strict on staying at home yes. for the last 10 months and not meeting people. How are you managing with that? Uh, I'm very lucky. I can work from home. Uh, and I have an underlying condition, emphysemia. If I get this virus, I'll be in big trouble. And uh, so it's not a hardship for me as much as it is for other people. I can work from home. I am happy in my relationship. Uh, we have a nice home. So I'm, I'm blessed. Are you looking forward to the vaccine? I am. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I don't know where I am on the list, but I'm sure there are people uh, on the front line of this who should be looked after way before me. Uh, and I'm not anxious to jump any queues. Eamon Dunphy, look after yourself. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Matt. Minister of State Oisín Smith is still with us, but we're joined now by the co-leader of the Social Democrats, Roisín Shortall. So what do you make of this idea of that if anybody comes into the country by air or by sea, that they would be forced, like Australian style, to go to a hotel for a fortnight to quarantine before being allowed to go on? Well, Matt, what I'm interested in is what works. And it's important that we learn from those countries that have been successful in tackling the virus and who've, because of that, they have been able to open up their own economy, open up society. And wouldn't it be great if we could do that? Um, and, you know, you have to look to countries beyond Europe. Europe actually hasn't been very good in, in dealing with this. But you look to Australia, to New Zealand, to South Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, many countries that have taken the approach of driving down the virus to very low figures, having really good testing and tracing, and then controlling the borders in terms of preventing uh, the importation of the virus. And there's no reason why we couldn't do that. Um, I and others have raised this several times with the government and indeed the last government and, and the last Taoiseach earlier last year. And I mean, there was a mantra coming from government, we're not Australia, we're not in the Southern Hemisphere. And at no point, I think, was there a serious attempt made to learn from those other countries and to see what are those things that we could do that would give us the best chance of surviving this. And, you know, instead of that, what the government chose to do was to enter into rolling lockdowns. Yeah, but if we were to do that in our airports and in our ferry ports, how would we deal with the issue of people going in via Belfast and coming over the border. OK, there's a couple of issues there. First of all, we have to have a serious um, system in place at our ports and airports. We've never had that. And I have to say that neither Eamon Ryan nor uh, Stephen Donnelly have ever taken the responsibility seriously in relation to travel. I mean, for half of last year, there was a kind of a system in place where people had to fill out a form and there were follow-up calls to ensure that they were self-isolating there. But, you know, several months ago, the government seemed to give up on that completely. So, you know, I've been tracking this every single month. And if you look at the most recent figures, like the week after Christmas, I think about 33,000 people came in here. 18% um, of those got a phone call. Half of those weren't answered. 
So 9% of people coming in here at a point when the, the pandemic was absolutely raging, at a point when we knew there were serious problems with the UK variant and, and um, also with the danger of other variants, which could be even worse. And, um, you know, nothing serious being done about well, that. Well, i put that to you. I mean, is your party leader, Minister for Transport, has he been naive in being so trusting that people coming into the country would behave appropriately? Um, not at all. And in fact, you can't enter the country now without having um, done a, a negative PCR no. test within, After the last, 10 within the last three days. So you, you, everybody coming into the country must have tested negative before you, you can proceed. After that, you have to do, it's a legal requirement. Sorry, what about the 80 people who have just come in in the last few days from Brazil and from Britain who were given a pass on that because they'd booked their tickets before this announcement was made? Uh, I'm, as far as I'm aware, the, the, the law is in place. I'm speaking to the Gardaí today and I understand that, uh, that 80 uh, prosecutions are being prepared in relation to people who entered the country without complying with the Matt, requirements Matt, to have Matt, a I'm sorry, test. I just have to cut across there. This thing which Eamon Ryan announced of the requirement to have a PCR test within 72 days of departure, that's one element of it. All of the public health advice is that you must have two negative PCR tests. So you have one before you travel and when you arrive then within five days, you should be having another one. But in the meantime, you have to quarantine. And I mean, you do. You, it, have to, you have but, to. You have to. You have to stay in your sorry, house for fourteen that days, is what it, and, that, and you may leave if you do a second PCR test after five and there days. Is, unless there is unless no monitoring of that. Or there from is, South Africa. Look, there is no monitoring of that whatsoever. As I said, there nine percent of people are getting phone calls, and you know, you look what's happened in the last couple of weeks. We, there is growing concern about a new variant from Brazil. In the last two weeks, 1,500 people have come into this country from Brazil. Now, the advice, again, we have um, Stephen Donnelly saying... I think that's a very dangerous thing sorry, you're doing now, Roisin. Sorry. Spreading, spreading fear about people coming from Brazil. I, there are many thousands sorry, of people from Brazil Sorry, I am Brazil not spreading fear. Look, and I think you want to be very careful look, about how you, how you approach this. No, no, this. Come, come on. Look, be fair about this. We no, have no, an issue... think about it before you. I'm, sorry, I'm, not, I'm not playing sorry. politics here, but just think you, about it. I think that. you are, actually, Roisin. Look... We have a situation where we need to control the importation of the virus. Now, wherever people are coming from, there needs to be safeguards put in place so that we're not importing uh, new levels of the virus and new variants. Now, it is a fact that there, uh, that there is a new variant that people are very concerned about in Brazil. There, so are, that, there, are, that, there are new sorry, variants all, sorry, over, the, all sorry, over the world. Allow me to point to, out and say there's me, some kind of peril from sorry. the West or whatever. I mean, that's, that's I'm, not I'm not that. doing that. And I think it's extremely disingenuous of I you to you accuse me of doing that. I'm stating a fact and I'm saying that if people are coming here from Brazil and lots of... What do you think is going to happen to a Brazilian who's working tomorrow who runs into somebody in Ireland listening to you? to what I'm saying? Stop doing that. That's that's really unfair and disingenuous, Minister. Look, there is a situation and where people are coming back into Ireland after Christmas break in Brazil. We have concerns about Brazil, just as when people are coming back from the UK or from South Africa, you take precautions. Now, and so, so stop, you know, inferring there's something else here. And that means that there is very clear medical advice for those people. And there's an assurance that they're not going to bring it in if they have it, that they, they quarantine for a sufficiently long length of time. I, now, I, don't, I don't think you mean now, any harm by doing it, right? But, well, Just to be clear you, you that. But I think it's a that, dangerous thing You to implied do. that I'm I was. What I'm, doing, what I'm doing is facing up to the reality. Now, the other point that you made, Matt, about people coming in here where there's a legal requirement 
Ireland to have um, to have a negative test. And we know that in the last couple of weeks, 80 people came in that didn't have those tests. And there's now talk about referring files to the DPP. Look, if you're required to have a test and you come in here without the test, there has to yeah, be okay. close so monitoring of that. Uh, no, I think that, that, that is a fair Would point. Would this not be more important, rather than having files going to the DPP, that these people have forced quarantine? Hasn't yes. there been a naivety throughout but, 2020, going back to the outset, when a rugby international between Ireland and Italy was cancelled correctly, exactly. but all the flights with the fans were still allowed in, when before Christmas that you knew a major crisis had broken out with a new variant in Britain, and yet you were very slow to stop people travelling so, from so Britain the, to the, Ireland for the, Christmas. The, the airlines are not, are not allowed to board people onto planes who don't have the PCR tests in advance of coming to Ireland. So I think that that, that, that side of it will help. To come to the, the question about quarantining, mandatory quarantining for people, I just want to say that, that now we don't have mandatory quarantine for people who we know have tested positive. So thousands of people are testing positive every day. We're not, manda we're not we mandatorily quarantining, quarantining even those people. Should so to quarantine we? Would people that not on be suspicion in the public health interest to from, do that? Sorry? Would that not be in the overall interest of society, the public health interest, to have mandatory quarantining oh, of people who are okay. COVID so positive? Okay, you, so you, you, you can suggest we've, we've, we have uh, a very large number of people have, have tested positive. Must be must be over seventy thousand people have tested positive. Do you think that we're going to take seventy thousand people and mandatorily quarantine them in a camp or something? It's not it's it's not realistic, and it's not proportional to take people and say, "Well, you came from another country, so I'm going to quarantine you for fourteen days just on suspicion," knowing that we've got a tiny, tiny number of the of the new cases have related to international travel. So that would not be a proportionate response. So, but what I what I could say is that I think that the that the enforcement of uh, of um, of self isolation. Um, should be looked at, and I think that if we do consider that there is an increased risk and that, and that um, mandatory, mandatory quarantine can be allowed within the law... Look, and th that it this can is not... You have mandatory quarantining in your own home rather than going to some sort of concentration camp... Well, so long as there's some kind of supervision of it. You know, but, but this, it's just ridiculous for you to say 10 months into a pandemic when the, the virus is raging at the moment, when our hospitals are under huge pressure and you're saying you will look at it. Minister Donnelly said exactly the same when it was put to him. Why aren't we doing uh, mandatory quarantining like those other countries and like Britain is, is starting to do now? And he said, we're going to look at it. I mean, that's just not good enough at this stage in the pandemic. And Minister, we on. do have a situation whereby if you're caught five kilometres away from your own home, that you'll get fined €100. Euro. Is that as serious as people who we fear may have the illness coming into the country and moving around freely? You're, 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 no, you're no more likely to have the, the illness coming in because you're a foreigner than you, are, than you are within Ireland. We've got higher rates than many of our neighbours within Europe at this stage. So you can see that there's a problem with the proportionality. If you treat people differently because they're from another country compared to people within your own country, simply because you're, you, you, you know, you're, you're scared of them, that's, that, that's, not a, that's not a fair approach. And okay, it's, 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 I, actually, it's I, not I a rational think... approach either. It's not a good way to target resources. Like for, I was um, in conversation with Mike Ryan recently. He was saying... He was advising against um, mandatory quarantine. He said that it could result in, in having outbreaks no, in concentrated look, look, centres. Here, here we and he, are and again. He said that we should concentrate our resources here on we genomic are again uh, examination with and ministers, to look for new variants. Here we are again with ministers putting out false stories. There was one occasion when in Australia there was an outbreak in one of the quarantine 
centres. And that is now being used consistently by ministers as an argument against doing it. It has been hugely successful in Australia, in New Zealand and in those other countries. But look, the other point I would put to you, and you know, again, I take exception to you um, implying something about my motivations. I'm not implying anything no, no, about your motivations. Sorry, you absolutely and I, and I, did. I, I, you I absolutely did. I don't now, mean to. I just want to make a point. But I, but I think it is dangerous you to say that. listen to what I'm saying, please. Just before Christmas, it became obvious that there was a new dangerous variant in the UK. And the response was to stop the flights from there. Right. So, you know, it, it, that's what, what was decided at the time. We need other special measures in relation to people coming in generally, but especially coming in from countries that have new variants. Okay. And the other point I would just make, of course, the huge loophole that's there, that where people come in to Dublin airport in the main and because they're travelling on to the, the north, they don't have to fill out the form. Uh, the passenger locator form. And in spite of Robin Swan requesting that we would cooperate with them in the north so they could trace people who came in through Dublin, uh, the Irish government refused to cooperate. All right, we will come back to it. I have to take a break now. Up next, can we learn from the mistakes made when it comes to getting out of lockdown this time? Behavioural economist Pete Lunn joins us right after this. Welcome back. We're well, joined now via Skype by behavioural economist with the ESRI, Pete Lunn, and our panellists, Ushin Smith and Roshin Shorter, are still with us. Pete, you've been saying less of the criticism of what happened before Christmas. Let's learn from our mistakes when we come to moving out of this particular lockdown. But in what way? Yeah, absolutely, Matt. So I'm trying to be constructive and I'm trying to look forward. And I think what's likely to happen here, and let's really hope the first part of this is correct, is that we will get on top of this third wave and we'll start to push the numbers back down again. There is a lot of work still to do to make sure that happens. But we need to be thinking now about changing the argument once that happens, because we'll be back in a situation, sure, the vaccine is going to help, but it's going to be some months before it's going to make a really big difference. And consequently, we're going to be back in the same situation of trying to decide a reasonable amount to open up the economy and to open up society. And what I'm saying is we need to change the argument that we got stuck in a trade-off as it was perceived between lives and livelihoods, between health outcomes on the one hand and economic outcomes on the other. And I think we need to change the way we're thinking of that trade-off. How? How do we do that? And what do we look at instead? So the way it's been couched is as if there's a kind of quantity on one side, a quantity on the other, and it's a kind of balance. And if a decision scientist were to look at what's actually going on here, what they would say is this, that that leads us astray, that way of thinking about the trade-off, because actually one side of this trade-off is very uncertain, extremely hard to predict, and quite volatile. And so really what we're dealing with, it's more like driving a car in bad conditions when you're late. There is a real cost to being late, and that's the kind of economic cost. You can measure it, you know that cost is there. But if you push too hard, what happens is you lose control of the vehicle. And if you open up too quickly, and if you open up the economy and society too fast, what happens is you lose control of infection. And once you do what we are learning through these consistent ups and downs of this pandemic, what we are learning is if you ever lose control and let that growth rate get out of control, you then have to lock right down to pull it back again. And actually, in the long run, economically, 
it actually costs you more. So having changed the way we think of that trade-off, that it's about, yes, economic cost on one side, but about keeping control of a very volatile situation on the other, I think what it tells you is that you need to go more slowly, more cautiously, and above all as well, you need to monitor much more carefully as you go. We'll go back to that analogy you drew of driving the car in bad conditions. You know, what about the influence of the back seat drivers, the lobbyists, and even the constituents of politicians who were telling politicians that they had to open up, that people had had enough of lockdown? Well, I, I liken them in the piece I wrote at the weekend to people yelling at the back and complaining that they're going to be late when they can't feel the road. We have to trust our expert community here when they are telling us that we are close to losing control. And we have to go more slowly and cautiously, and we have to trust that community. There's absolutely no doubt that what happened over Christmas, and I don't want to dwell on it, I do want to look forward and be constructive, but what happened was we made an error. And what, what occurred, what occurred to the case numbers was not out of bounds from the predictions that were available at the start of December as to what would happen if we opened up too quickly and too early over Christmas. So we need to learn that lesson and constructively looking forward, we need to be slower, we need to be more cautious, and we need to monitor it really carefully as, as we go. Think about it, if you're in circumstances that are dangerous and highly uncertain in any walk of life, what you do is you proceed cautiously and each time you make a move, you make sure it hasn't made a difference before you make another one. It's that kind of decision that we need to get our heads around as being very different from a trade-off because one side of the equation is a fundamentally different thing to grapple with. Pete, very briefly, and all the times you were with us on this programme last year, times I spoke to you on radio, you seem very much to prefer the carrot to the stick approach. Does that need to change? What do you make of, for example, fining people 100 euro if they're found to be more than five kilometres away from their home? I'm not against using a stick, but the behavioural science of this is pretty clear. I mean, we're requiring almost the entire population to make sacrifices for the greater good, right? You cannot do that entirely under the threat of punishment. In fact, the threat of punishment is never going to be your primary weapon. Your primary weapon is going to be people complying because they understand that it is vital that they do and that if we all do that and we all do it together, we're all better off. And it's getting that logic across and getting people to understand that that is always going to be your most powerful weapon, at least until a vaccine comes along to help us out on this one. Pete Long, thank you very much for joining us. Minister Oshin Smith, what lessons has the government learnt from perhaps doing things too rashly back in December? Will you be more cautious? Because you're trying to open up the schools for people with their children with additional needs this Thursday, and it looks like that's failing because you can't get the unions and others to go along with you. I think there seems to be an element of uh, seasonality with this virus, with this novel virus. So it looks like I remember back in June and July when restaurants were open and people were having their holidays in Ireland and, um, and you know, cases were not shooting up right away. And clearly in the winter, it appears that that, that is a factor. And I think that uh, now we're in, in January, um, that the government will be a lot more careful, I would say. I and you admit on, that you made bad its... mistakes in December in opening up too many things too I think quickly. They, I think they wouldn't do that. I, I, didn't, I, don't, think, I don't think they would make those choices again, uh, knowing how the, how the virus developed or how it evolved. And, uh, and I would say to people that there is light at the end of the tunnel, that we, are, we have four mass vaccination centres open over the weekend. Uh, most GPs have been vaccinated. Nursing homes will be vaccinated by the end of the week. So we're coming towards a point where the people who are most vulnerable, uh, who are most at risk of dying from this, and the frontline healthcare workers will all be vaccinated, and everybody over 70 by the end, by the end of March. 
So there is, you know, we're coming to a point where, a turning point where most of the people who are at risk in society are protected. Roshan, would you share that confidence? Well, look, yes, hopefully we'll be able to roll out the vaccine quickly, as quickly as possible. But the likelihood is it'll be well into the summer, if not the autumn, by the time most people are vaccinated because we're constrained by the supplies that are available. I just think, Matt, that it's interesting that all of the guests that joined you tonight by video were people who favoured taking a near elimination or zero COVID. Uh, approach to this. And uh, Pete Lund made a very interesting point there that, you know, economic concerns and health concerns are two sides of the, of the same coin. They shouldn't be in competition with each other. And it makes an awful lot of sense for us to set a target number of daily cases rather than just saying we're going to go into, you know, level five for a month or for two months or whatever. Let's set a target and let everybody work towards that. And then when we so get when to we that point... When we had the target last year of getting it down to 100, we opened exactly. up restrictions of 400. Yes, it was supposed to be between 50 and, and 100. And unfortunately, that approach was, was ignored. So, you know, it, there's a lot to be said for taking that approach now. Everybody pulling together, driving down those figures as much as possible, ensuring that we have proper testing and tracing ensuring that we have quarantining uh, in the airports. And if we do that and follow the example of other countries that have been successful, it will be possible to open up the economy. And, Oshin, it will be possible to open up and hospitality and More society. More given to the opinions of Tony Holohan and Neffet this time? I think Tony Holohan is, is, is listened to very carefully and he's out on Maybe the, listened to, but, but his, will more weight be given to him? Tony, Tony Holohan, I think, I think a lot of weight is given to what he says. He's not, he's not the person who makes economic decisions. He's okay. the person who gives us our health advice. That's all we have time for. Thank you to all of our guests this evening. I'll be back on Today FM tomorrow afternoon and back here tomorrow night at 10 o'clock. Stay home and stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.